Hey everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. Well, it's an understatement to say our country's going through historic things right now. So I'm going to be quite brief, actually. Uh, for me, what this suggests, the pandemic, uh, what happened in Minneapolis and all the heroic and, and really inspiring protesting we're seeing, uh, Trump's absurd response to it, gassing his own people, armed troops on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, uh, trying to divide us by race. Uh, it just, again, I think clarifies for us how important this election is. And that it's all on the line. I mean, if he will do these things now, when he's still got to face the voters, what's he going to be like in a second term? And so uh, I know all you believe this, but I, I think we're going to continue to see that Trump has no bottom. He's going to continue to do things and say things that shock us. I don't think any of this is particularly helping him politically. He clearly thinks it is. But at the end of the day, you know, if you were to write a fictional book or watch some fictional television series about a president who descends into madness, you know, you'd shake your head and say, they'd never do that. They'd never do that. Trump's doing it. We're living through it. And so I think our only recourse is to win this election, to win it by some margin, so that a message is sent that Trumpism uh, is going to be rejected, not just Trump himself, but Trumpism. doesn't mean we're going to kill it on Election Day, but we may wound it. We've got to win by enough of a margin here, Joe Biden does, to win the Senate back so we can actually enact smart economic policies, smart policing policies, smart reform. So I think the mandate's clear here. We've got to win this election. We've got to win it big um, because we're living through something I think many of us have a hard time reconciling uh, the country we thought we were living in. And in many ways, what Trump is trying to do is replicate the Nixon strategies somewhat in his 1968 race. Uh, when he kind of ran on quote-unquote law and order, but even more so in 69 through the end of his uh, presidency when he resigned, when he was much more clear about appealing to the quote-unquote silent majority, uh, targeting blacks, using the drug war, trying to you know create the image of protesters as kind of crazy anti-American figures. That's what Trump's doing. Now, I doubt Trump himself has read much of the history, but he's familiar with it. I'm sure his team has. And that's why I'm excited to have on the program today the author of kind of the definitive view of that period and the political strategy behind it, Rick Perlstein, who wrote the amazing book, Nixon Land. It came out in 2008. I read it first back in 2011 because my boss then, President Obama, insisted I read it, insisted many of his senior team read it, and was really just a great window into the strategy and tactics that were employed by Nixon. Some of that carried through Reagan and some of it's carrying through today. So if you want to understand you know, what's happening today in terms of Trump's tactics. I'm not sure he has a strategy, but his tactics and what we're likely to see. The book Nixon Land is a really great window into the Nixon approach, and I'm sure you're going to see more of that. I mean, Trump tweeted today, I'm recording this on Wednesday, two words, silent majority, which comes right out of the speech uh, that Richard Nixon gave back in 69, a speech that was very well received and really gave a jolt to his approval ratings. Now, things are very different. When Nixon ran, you know, he was a challenger. There had been eight years of democratic governance. The Civil Rights Act had been passed. There was a sense that, you know, race was going to settle down as an issue. Of course, understandably, it did not uh, because African-Americans uh, were still being targeted by police forces and still not given equal opportunity. They're still not today. So a lot's changed. But I think Trump understands and his team understands that, you know, 60 to 90 days ago, this looked like more of a coin flip race. And by the way, it could still be again. But right now, 
Trump has clearly lost political altitude, and he's desperate. And so he's going back to something that's been consistent in his life, trying to divide us by race. Uh, whether it's, you know, some of the policies that he and his father's company, uh, racist uh, rental policies they employed back in the 70s, uh, his really outrageous behavior around the Central Park Five. Uh, and now this is a comfortable place for Trump. But I think we're going to see more and more of it in the days and weeks and months to come. So I'm really excited to talk to Rick Perlstein. I think you'll learn from him. What are the consistencies between uh, the Nixon approach and the, and the Trump approach? Uh, where are their differences? What's changed in the country? But I think you can't really understand what's happening today without understanding that period in American history. And there's nobody better to uh, inform us in that than Rick Perlstein. Rick Perlstein, thank you so much for being with us on Campaign HQ. It's an honor, David. Well, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, I just loved your book. Nixon Land, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America. I was The reason I read it is President Barack Obama said I had to read it. <laughs> he was a big fan of it, and a lot of us in the White House read it back in 11 and 12. So I'd love to get your perspective on, well, you probably don't know this, but I'm curious how much of what Trump and his administration and his campaign are doing right now do you think is based on studying what Nixon did back uh, both in 68, but particularly leading into his reelect in 72. I mean, I think that he thinks that he's doing what Richard Nixon did in 68 and 72. But, you know, he's, he's you know, as in so many things, not a very effective student. Uh, Nixon was, if nothing else, an incredibly disciplined, tactically shrewd, strategically careful guy. You know, he used to have a saying Never lose your temper unless it's on purpose. Uh, he used to uh, game plan press conferences by coming up with questions that might be asked, writing out answers, and then memorizing them. So it's kind of hard to imagine Donald Trump uh, doing that. But in the same way, uh, Richard Nixon and also Ronald Reagan were very skilled and very careful uh, about uh, you know the old dog whistle, you know, um, reaching out to ro- voters who might support policies that, shall we say, deliver disparate impact to African-American communities uh, without uh, making people who supported them feel like bigots. And, uh, you know, MAGA loves the African-Americans is not quite at that level of accomplishment, shall we say. Yeah, right. So, I mean, talk about, you know, so in 68, Democrats had held the White House for eight years, mm-hmm. both Kennedy and Johnson. So Nixon was a challenger. So that's a big right. difference, maybe the biggest difference. Uh, Nixon was much more skilled than Trump, uh, you know, could be uh, quite uh, crude off mic, but on mic, um, much more skilled. So talk about. So, yeah, Trump's using the word silent majority. He's clearly uh, engaging in dog whistles. He's clearly trying to suggest that there's a liberal minority horde out there, you know, that's going to ransack your home and your community and you need to be scared. So he's trying to scare people. But talk about what you think the differences are, both in terms of the atmosphere, but also the principal's ability to execute on that strategy, as terrible as it may be, it worked for Nixon. Yeah, right. Uh, I mean, I think that this this metaphor is hardly original with me, but, you know, where Nixon and Reagan used the dog whistle, Trump uses the train whistle, right? Says the quiet parts out loud. Uh, the guy, you know, who says, you know, they're sending us our rapists, right? That's not a dog whistle. That's uh, I hate Mexicans, <laughs> uh, you know, in the same way, you know, um, his very kind of punitive rhetoric this time makes it, you know, 
very hard to kind of thread that needle to for 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 uh, you know the people that were precisely uh, strategically the target of Richard Nixon's silent majority rhetoric in '69 and his Law and Order rhetoric in 1968, which is basically white suburbanites, you know, folks behind their white picket fence, are the same people who retreated from Trump in droves in 2018 when he you know doubled down in his uh, anti-immigrant stuff. Uh, then, of course, there's the strategic situation of, like you say, the difference between uh, being an incumbent and being a challenger. Um, you know, Richard Nixon, first of all, that was a very close election. And uh, as you know, and second of all, there was a, 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 a um, independent candidate, uh, George Wallace. So that very that basically gave Nixon the opportunity to to use a co- word that was coined much later, triangulate. Uh, between you know George Wallace's um, not necessarily overt racism because even even George Wallace by 1968 knew that it was politically radioactive to sound like a racist, but certainly his uh, much more violent rhetoric when it came to law and order. You know he would give a rally at Madison Square Garden and some reporter from New Republic says, "I'll never wonder what it was like to be in Weimar Germany when the Nazis were rising." Right? He would say, "If so, a protester lies." front of my limousine will speed up, you know, so Nixon could sound like the statesman quite easily. But it was a very close election. Uh, it's definitely true. And political scientists have found that, uh, you know, people tilted to Nixon who were afraid of urban disorder. The urban disorder was colossal, much bigger than anything we've seen now uh, in April of 1968 in my own city, Chicago. And you know this very well. Uh, Madison Street, Street on the west side was ruined for two miles. You know, two miles of burnt out buildings. Uh, we haven't seen that yet. You know, in the riots in 1967, 71 people died around the country. I mean, I think we only have the poor uh, 52-year-old barbecue stand owner so far, blessedly, in Louisville. And then the thing about it is, in 1970, you know, during the interval between 1968 and 1970, there weren't really race riots too many, but the the disorder was profound. I mean, you know, three quarters of colleges going out and strike and riot tanks running down the street in Berkeley, California. And Richard Nixon, again, doubled down on the 1968 law and order strategy in nationalizing the 1970 elections. He made a massive tour all around the country for vulnerable candidates and would talk about thugs and hoodlums and said, you know, if you want uh, this stuff to end, vote for these Republicans. And if you want more of the same, vote for the Democrats. And very much uh, like Joe Biden now, it's kind of ironic because this was a speech that uh, he gave in his living room. One of the most prominent Democrats, Senator Edmund Muskie, who basically had been Hubert Humphrey's running mate in 1968, gave this speech calling for compassion, calling for calm, gave a wonderful Democratic speech about voting for your uh, interests instead of voting your fears. And the Republicans did terrible. They way underperformed expectations. So, you know, there's no hard and fast rule in American politics that, um, you know, calling for law and order is the winner. I mean, George H.W. Bush tried it in 1992 after the L.A. riots. He said, this is what happens when you kowtow to liberal left wing activists. And Bill Clinton said he has to go back 12 years to make his argument. Right. Uh, Because, you know, Republicans have been in office for 12 years. So if Donald Trump is trying to make an argument 
vote for me and this stuff that happened when I was president is not going to happen. It's a hard argument to make. And I think we're already seeing a little um, tilt towards uh, Joe Biden. I I think there was one poll that showed that since these disturbances happened, uh, Biden might have gained a couple of points. Right. Well, the other big difference is that the electorates changed. So uh, my recollection is in 68, Nixon and Wallace together got uh, almost 57% of the vote. That wouldn't be the case today, right? Uh, the electorate is just much more diverse. Yes. And one of one of the great, one of the many, many, many great dirty tricks that Richard Nixon affected in the interim was to bribe George Wallace uh, to run as a Democrat in 1972, basically by getting his... Uh, his brother out of a little tax jam. So uh, he was able to effectuate his 1972 strategy, which was not really to, um, you know, he pulled back on the law and order stuff. Of course it was a part, you know, it was kind of what he was identified with, but it was much more kind of like, I'm the statesman who can end the Vietnam war. uh, And these guys are extremists in the following ways. And, you know, they're going to raise your taxes and uh, give welfare to people. And, you know, that sort of thing. So, Again, not a very close comparison. I'm curious, Rick. So you write in your book about how important the Watts riots in L.A. back in 65, I think it was 1965, Mm -hmm. were to this era. And I just, you know, you could probably still draw a direct line from that to today. But let's talk about the media. Right. Um, Let me talk about the electorate and the media, too, because that has changed an enormous amount. First, of course, with the letter electorate, you know, you had, first of all, moderate and even liberal Republicans and conservative and even reactionary Democrats. So the whole electoral order of battle was different. Uh, obviously, a much more white electorate. And the fact of the matter is, this is an electorate that had never seen anything like this in their lifetimes. I mean, during World War II, there were riots, but they were pretty much the kind of riots that had been seen earlier than the 20th century. They're almost kind of like anti-black and anti-Mexican pogroms. The idea of African-Americans, you know, burning down their own neighborhoods was simply an astonishment. And I like to say, you know, you can't really have historical parallels because when an event has happened <laughs> long time ago, that event has happened and informs what happens in the future. Right. So this, you know, is not as shocking to see kind of urban disruptions as it was in 1965, in which it was like a visitation from another planet. And one of the striking things about the Watts riots was that it happened in this neighborhood that people had thought had been kind of kind of calm and prosperous, which is Watts, because people lived in bungalows with little patches of lawn out in the front. It happened, like I think, seven or eight days after the signing of the Voting Rights Act. And Lyndon Johnson, when he signed that with Martin Luther King under the Capitol Dome, said, you know, the, the, the slaves came, the African-Americans, he was, a, he was a Negroes came to this country from Africa in chains, and we've finally broken the, the last shackles of those fierce and ancient bonds. So he's almost kind of like in this very nationally televised, prominent speech saying, racism is over. I have signed out of existence America's racial ordeal. Of course, this would have been news to the folks in Watts who experienced a police force. And that's another um, thing we can talk about. Unfortunately, that's the the one parallel that's quite similar to today, in which the members were recruited by this racist police chief, William Parker, from the Mississippi Delta, uh, that would, you know, kind of get themselves in the mood for patrolling South Central Los Angeles by saying, let's shoot a motherfucker tonight. And when 
the commission that investigated the riots, the McCone Commission federally, interviewed this guy, William Parker, the police chief in, in Los Angeles. He said it only happened because one of those monkeys picked up a rock and then everyone else started picking up rocks. So this is, you know, this is the kind of thing that, you know, people in Watts were living with. But to America didn't know that. White America didn't know that. There was just much, much, much less awareness. We had this new poll finding that 52% of Americans agree that the blacks are treated worse than police. You never would have seen that in 1965. It would have been totally a shock. And then suddenly it's happening every summer. There are more riots in 1966, a massive riot in Cleveland. 67, you had riots in which, you know, dozens of people died. 68, the riots after Martin Luther King. And this kind of seemed to be this kind of permanent fixture. And one thing that that um, reactionary right-wing Democrat and Republican politicians uh, picked up on was this argument that this is almost kind of caused by great society legislation, that um, basically these ungrateful bastards don't know how good they have it. And, uh, you know, one of the guys who, who said this was Senator Sam Irvin of North Carolina, who later became a liberal hero during the Watergate hearings, but he was a segregationist politician. And he said, the more laws you pass, the more violence we get. Uh, and right now what's happening is happening after like a 10-year period of movements against police violence, a quite effective movement. Uh, you know, we've seen a, you know, a film about Oscar Grant, who was, you know, shot by the transit police in, in the Bay Area. Um, we saw, you know, a, a wonderful movie, Queenie and Slim, that came out last year uh, about, you know, a couple that shoots a cop in self-defense. And it's just people are much, much, much more aware of, you know, the racist tragedy of policing in the United States. So you can't really, you know, this, and you see almost this, this striking outpouring of sympathy. I mean, did you see the letter that Lachlan uh, uh, Murdoch sent to Fox employees? Yeah, it'd be nice if he sent it to his talent, uh, you know, on the air. But yeah, no, it was it was striking. But I think you're right. So the the canvas that this is playing out on, you know, if you you know, first of all, the country was different. Uh, the composition of the electorate was different. You mentioned there was four years of riots. Uh, I think you make a really important point that I think for a lot of probably white Americans, the Civil Rights Act gets passed. They're like, and now and there's there's still protests, right? Of course, they were right to protest. This is different, right? I I think it could not be more different. Like Trump's trying to generate. Uh, something, uh, you know, I think, you know, that is not consistent with where the public is. But let's talk about the media, because right now yeah, I yeah, still yeah, think yeah, the media know. is covering the looting more than they should. But, you know, they're showing the peaceful protests. We have social media. We've got cable news, very different than the 60s. But you talk in your book about NPR. NPR has been great. You know, it's like they've been very contextual and compassionate. Right. I still think it's a little more sensationalized than the reality, but it has been more right. And you've got, you've got citizens out with phones telling their own stories on Instagram and Twitter back in the sixties, particularly you talk. So uh, I think powerfully about the role television played in Watts, right? It was live television. Talk a little bit about that. And that really penetrated the consciousness of the country. Yes. Watts was kind of a watershed in, in the history of, of, TV news, I guess, local news, right? And anyone who is listening to this in Los Angeles will appreciate it because KTLA, uh, I forget which which uh, network they, they're the affiliate of, but they invented the news helicopter, right? And it really had been only used for kind of very stupid stories, you know, kind of snooping on celebrities and stuff like that. But once, you know, these riots broke out and there was smoke rising for blocks and blocks and blocks, so much so, by the way, that planes that were coming in Los Angeles airports said it looked like, you know, a war zone. 
um, they, they, they sent out the helicopter. And one reason they did that was because when they set their news cars out, they would get Molotov cocktails thrown at them. Uh, so that's why, and they would send their feed out on a national, you know, nationally. So basically you could, for, for hours at a time, for days at a time, you could watch an American city in flames. And you didn't know when it was going to end. You didn't know how much, you know, if, if they were going to, you know, like start marauding in the suburbs. That was certainly the fear in Los Angeles. I wrote a lot about that. Uh, you didn't know if it was going to happen, you know, in your town. You didn't know if this was coordinated. You didn't know because this is the 1965 and there's a lot of Cold War paranoia. If this was something the communists had set up, right? It sounds crazy now, but I'm sure a lot of people thought that. Certainly a lot of reactionary politicians said that. And, you know, going forward, just the idea uh, in media coverage uh, that this was just um, – completely irrational and completely baffling and completely non-responsive to anything was basically the hegemonic dominant interpretation of the voices in the media. Very different. Right. So let's talk about another difference, which is um, people, I think, uh, may not remember or don't know that actually Nixon went to the Lincoln Memorial to meet with anti-war protesters. Uh, Trump, on the other hand, had we don't know whether they were Eric Prince's, you know, for hire mercenaries or DEA. But, you know, he had armed guards on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. I thought that was a fascinating split screen difference. Yeah. Roger Ailes would have never set up a shot that was so ineffectual. Right. Or Mike Deaver. Right. It was it was just, you know, terrible visuals. Right. And, uh, you know, Richard Nixon <laughs> had a lot of physical courage. I mean, you're mentioning something that happened in 1970. Uh, 57, but in, you know, in 1958, you know, he was on a kind of goodwill tour to South America and radicals organized a mob and his car was being stoned and he got out of the car and he just kind of went nose to nose with these guys and started arguing with them. He was really putting his life on the line. And then, yes, in, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like he was, you know, completely, you know, kind of blithe about protesters. You know, they would surround the White House with buses. When John Dean gave his Watergate testimony, the first thing he said in his statement that shocked everybody was that Nixon sent him out to Lafayette Square to kind of tear down banners. Right. It's not like he was he was, you know, like Zen like about this stuff. But yes, after, you know, who knows how many cocktails, the rally that was held overnight on the mall in 1970 after the Kent State shooting, he somehow got it in his mind that he was going to go out and talk to these kids. It's kind of wonderfully reproduced in in, in Oliver Stone's uh, Nixon movie. He went out there and he was the weirdest politician ever because he was so uncomfortable with people. You know, they used to say that he used to practice his handshake in the mirror. And he started talking to kids who said they were from the University of Syracuse about the University of Syracuse football team. And they look at him like he was nuts and, you know, asked if any, you know, someone was from California and asked if they surfed. And yes, he, he seemed to have, you know, kind of like beamed himself down from some spaceship. But at least he was out there. And he did not have, you know, a military cordon. It was spontaneous. He just had some Secret Service agents in their pictures. You can see him literally shoulder to shoulder with these long-haired protesters. And the contrast you're drawing, of course, is to Donald Trump retreating into a, you know, underground bunker. And, you know, it's not necessarily something we should <laughs> blame Donald Trump for. You know, security panic and security theater is just a basic part of our post-9-11 reality that somehow stitched itself, 
you know, firmly into our national fabric for good or ill, I say largely for ill. So if the president is threatened, uh, you can tell me if this is true. They are going to take you by the elbow and say, Mr. President, we strongly urge you to, you know, go into the underground bunker. But somehow that leaked or maybe it was officially said. And lo and behold, he looks like a coward with his tail between his legs. Right. No, it, it was leaked for sure. You know, you've got to go through those exercises when you work at the, the White House, but we never uh, utilized it. Um, so um, I'm wondering, Rick, when you saw, I think Martha Radish from ABC News is the person who posted the first photo of those armed guards on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. I'm just curious what, what your reaction was when you saw that. I don't think I saw that specific image. I've seen many, many images of uh, the militarization of the police and uh, just absolute berserk, almost provocation of protesters, peaceful protesters, so they could exact vengeance on them. I saw, you know, the non-lethal rounds being shot at the folks on their porch in Philadelphia. At least it's not like in Newark in 1967, where people sitting peacefully on their porch were shot or the, the cop who pulled down a guy's mask while his hands were up and, you know, shot tear gas into him or the cop that opened his car door to smack a guy as he passed by. You know, basically, these are aspects of a police riot. Police acting as political actors to instigate disturbances. Uh, you know, when it comes to troops on the, the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, uh, <laughs> that's quite a contrast to um, Martin Luther King on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, or Marian Anderson on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. It's very disturbing. You know, we really have to begin using the word fascism. But we're talking about a fascism that seems so clumsy and ineffectual that I think he might reap a backlash. Right. So let's talk about his clumsiness. So I don't think uh, anything Trump's doing is particularly strategic, particularly as it relates to like a decades-long project here, right? He's just trying to survive the next election. Uh, Nixon and his team were different, though. And, you know, it was revealed, um, you know, not too long, a few years ago, um, you know, I think John Ehrlichman had given an interview that finally was released, where he talked about, you know, the enemies of the country and of Nixon were the anti-war left and blacks. You couldn't go frontally at them. And they basically decided the drug war was the way uh, to target blacks. Talk a little bit about that, because clearly that was an eye towards not just the 72 election. It was trying to create this dynamic in the country um, that would last for decades. He did say that, Ehrlichman said that in his, in his memoir. I don't necessarily trust that particular representation, right? Uh, it's a little self-serving, but they definitely thought extremely tactically and extremely strategically about ha- how to handle protests. And the most fascinating uh, aspect of this, uh, I have a big chapter about it in Nixonland, is what happened uh, in October and November of 1969. On October 15th, 1969, of course, Richard Nixon gets elected, uh, promising very, very ambiguously, appearing to promise, shall we say, that was basically a dog whistle, to end the Vietnam War. And it's still going on in October. And it's still very ugly in October. And through some incredible organizing, some of the best organizing in the history of the American left, there is something called the Moratorium Day. Uh, in which people are asked on a Wednesday to stay home from school and stay home from work 
and 2 million people do so. And it's in towns like Kansas City. It's in rural areas. New Haven, the organizers called everyone in the phone book. Uh, and, and you know, basically you had middle Americans, ordinary Americans, and politicians, not just, you know, radical speakers, uh, talking about the anti-war movement as uh, a form of patriotism. Uh, it was not an extremist protest. And this very understandably terrified the Nixon White House. And they had a uh, basically an all-hands uh, um, project to respond to this. Um, you know, they did, um, they did Air Force flyovers at football games. Uh, they encouraged people to uh, travel uh, with their lights on to show solidarity with the troops. They uh, did um, fake spontaneous newspaper ads that looked like they were being done by citizens. By the way, William Casey, the future CIA director and Reagan campaign manager, uh, was uh, behind one of those. Um, so there was both public and secret, uh, both kind of underhanded uh, and non-underhanded tactics to try and recoup that damage before another protest that was going to happen in a month on November 15th. And the biggest part of this was the most successful presidential speech in history up to that point. It was the silent majority speech in which, you know, Nixon had a plan to um, turn over more of the fighting to the Vietnamese. And they decided to kind of package this plan in a big national speech uh, in which they announced the first big truth, troop withdrawals. But also um, coined, of course, that memorable phrase, the silent majority, in which uh, Richard Nixon quite brilliantly, and everyone can look up look it up on YouTube or you can play a clip on the, the podcast, um, said, look, uh, everyone believes in peaceful protest. Uh, everyone believes in peace and ending the war. I do too. Very similar rhetoric now. Um, but that's not what these people are up to. He says, when I was in San Francisco, uh, I saw a sign that said, uh, end the war, bring the boys home, lose in Vietnam, which I'm sure is almost certainly a lie. You know, who says lose, you know, lose a war? It's, it's just not part of a protester's argo. And he said basically that um, uh, the silent majority, the great silent majority of the people who don't protest. And it was a very brilliant rhetorical strategy because he really kind of um, played to people's um, fear that uh, maybe they weren't the moral ones in society. They'd been grown up; to, they'd, they'd grown up to believe that kind of working hard, playing by the rules, to use Bill Clinton's phrase, and you know, achieving middle class prosperity and just kind of keeping your nose clean and your head down was the most moral, noble, patriotic thing you can do. And then suddenly there are all these kind of media voices and establishment voices and preachers and and you know, Doctor Spock uh, telling you that you bought into an immoral system. And Richard Nixon reassured Americans that in fact, it was the silent majority who the moral were the, still the moral ones and the people who raised their voices, who were the ones who are actually, um, you know, this was again a dog whistle, acting almost like traitors. And by doing so, every time someone raised their voice, you know, they kind of associated themselves with the enemy in Richard Nixon's rhetoric. And it, it, I think something like his approval rating or his approval rating on his handling of the Vietnam War just, you know, went absolutely through the roof. Um, 
And yes, that was a law and order message, but it was, it was again, part of a very coordinated strategy. You know, there are pages and pages and pages that you can read about this at the Nixon library. Uh, and it's just the kind of thing we're not seeing from Donald Trump, who's just kind of like lurching from grunt to grunt. Yeah. I mean, something tells me that uh, in current, you know, in similar circumstances, Haldeman and Ehrlichman would not be suggesting that you tear gas uh, protesters in Lafayette Park uh, and, you know, walk across uh, and hold up a Bible upside down, <laughs> you know, in front of a church. I mean, well, he might have suggested that in May of 1971, in which uh, protesters, you know, occupied Washington and tried to shut it down. But that's a different movement, you know. Right. It's a di- No, they were just much more clever. I'm curious. So on the, the speech you talked about, um, the silent majority speech, so Trump now is tweeting out those two words, silent majority. I'm curious, Rick, do you, do, would you expect to see Trump maybe finally address the country from the Oval Office and and try and basically bring forth the echoes of that Nixon speech? I don't know. You know, I, I, I really uh, honestly uh, do not have any particular insight into how they go forward from this and what he would say. I mean, the problem is that, again, this is the that 1968 and 1970 contrast. The argument he's making is is a category error because the silent people, <laughs> almost you can make the, the, the metaphor literal, the people who are protesting silently, you know, laying on their backs, you know, and just kind of doing silent vigils are the protesters. The people who seem to be the loud ones uh, are the Trumps. You know, those are the people who are, you know, walking down the street with baseball bats, you know. So I, I, I think that a Roger Ailes or, you know, Roger Ailes deputy who spent, you know, a month in the White House before he got kicked out might be able to kind of come up with something clever. Um, but something clever that doesn't, you know, tickle the president's need to kind of dominate and humiliate is not likely to kind of make its way through the councils. You know, isn't it, doesn't the, the, the chief of the new chief of staff said he, he thought he'd be a strategist, but he turns out he's, um, what is it like a chambermaid or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it sounds horrible. So, um, you know, I think when we think about what Trump's doing now and generally Republican, uh, politicians attempt to divide us by race. You know, everybody naturally goes to Nixon, and I think he is and his team um, clearly were maybe the authors and certainly intensified it. Uh, I think a lot of times now we, you know, because I think particularly people like Pine for, well, Ronald Reagan, if he was alive today, he'd be a liberal Republican. And But, you know, he had an important role in his team uh, in this strategy of dividing the country by race. In your new book, Reagan Land, coming out in August, I'm sure you talk about this, but I mention this to people sometimes, and, you know, particularly people who aren't in politics, they have no recollection of it. They don't even believe it. I'm like, don't forget, this is someone who started his general election campaign. He went to Philadelphia, Mississippi, the site of those tragic murders of three civil rights workers back in 1964, to give a state's rights campaign. I mean, there was no subtlety there. So talk a little bit about how Reagan picked up the baton from Nixon. Yeah. So he actually started his primary campaign uh, in a tour of South Boston, which, of course, was the place where there had been kind of running street battles over uh, school segregation and integration. Cicero, Illinois, uh, which was a place where um, Martin Luther King did not march in 1966 because he would be warned he would almost certainly be assassinated because it was such a racist place. And that uh, that very year, uh, a guy, a black kid walked across the street into Cicero to try and get a job and was lynched, uh, and Atlanta. Um, so yeah, I mean, you can see, uh, his strategist, um, Richard Worthland saying our supporters are the people who are literally, he uses the word authoritarian, 
right? Uh, and uh, he, um, one of the reasons he was able to win over so many uh, labor union members, white labor union members, was uh, this backlash against uh, affirmative action and uh, civil rights. And um, again, Reagan also was very shrewd and strategic. Um, uh, and I'm going to say his, his strategists were very shrewd and strategic. He was, um, had a great emotional intelligence at picking up on audiences. And one of his greatest gifts as a rhetorician was his ability to kind of uh, cast what I call a liturgy of absolution, to basically cast um, a, a verdict of innocence on in all his audiences. He would talk constantly about how much progress America made. He would talk about individual civil rights triumphs. Uh, and he said the Democrats basically have to, they're the ones who are dividing America by raising this race issue, which has really already been settled. We all agree that racism is bad. And as a politician, he, he um, was very, very good at uh, getting out of the way and taking his advisor's advice. One of the most fascinating things I discovered researching Reaganland is I found two files of letters that were signed by Ronald Reagan. Uh, one was the letters that his advisors wrote. This is basically like 1978, 1979, when he's preparing to run for president. It was called the Sign Personally File. Aides would write letters to uh, basically kind of mainstream figures, uh, newspaper columnists, scholars, uh, uh, kind of uh, moderate politicians to be signed by Reagan, in which he'd kind of praise them and praise an article they'd written or a book. My favorite one was uh, one that went to a scholar uh, praising his book and talking about how wonderful it was. And then there's a cover note from uh, Reagan's advisor, Peter Hannaford, saying, Governor, don't bother to read the book. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But that was so that was that was basically, you know, again, this was kind of uh, him and Nixon being very good at, you know, um, being able to put up public front of statesmanship up. And then I also found his his dictation file, you know, the letters that he kind of sent to his friends. And those are just crazy wingnut craziness. You know, what do you think about um, uh, um, the biblical prophecies and how they're going to affect uh, uh, the coming war in the Middle East? You know, um, some are to Gene Dixon, you know, the newspaper psychic who was a friend of his, right? So it's not like Reagan was not impulsive and crazy. It's that he knew he was impulsive and crazy and was willing to kind of tamp that down for political advantage. And one of the ways that worked in the 1980 campaign was, you know, actually, um, one of the revisionist things I say in Reaganland was that he was really hurt by that Neshoba speech. The backlash was so immediate and so strong that actually I I, I quote a Republican official in Mississippi saying he he might lose Mississippi because of that speech because, again, Americans don't want to see themselves as racist. Mississippians don't want to see themselves as racist. They want to see themselves as colorblind conservatives. And he only actually won Mississippi by one point. Um, And, you know, Goldwater, he got an 87% Mississippi. So that wasn't necessarily a brilliant strategy. So one of the things they did, and the guy who was responsible for this was his strategist and pollster, Richard Worthlin, was they came up with an idea that turned out to be enormously influential among Republicans. He would give speeches to black groups and black churches, you know, to the Urban League, and, you know, Worthland didn't hide this. He would say this in interviews. We don't think we're going to get any black votes, he said. But this is meant as a signal to kind of white, what we now call white moderates in the suburbs. 
that they can support Reagan without thinking of themselves as racist or bigoted. And then they get the bonus of, you know, ending affirmative action and cutting welfare. And you know, during the eight years of Reagan's presidency, the um, the budget for housing was cut by something like 76 percent. Right. So it's not like the effects of his policies weren't racist. And it's not like you couldn't predict that the effects of his policies were racist. But you know, he wasn't saying that Mexicans were sending their rapists. In fact, one of the biggest differences ideologically between Donald Trump and Ronald Reagan is that he loved immigrants. He loved Mexican immigrants. He actually, uh, David, did you know that he called for literally, quote unquote, open borders in his opening speech of his campaign? Yeah. Again, I think that that part of Reagan's history gets carried forward, right? The Philadelphia, Mississippi one, a little less so. But it, but you're right. So that is a big difference. So Reagan and even Nixon as well. You know, Jackie Robinson supported Nixon in 68, at least outwardly. He also did outreach. You know, Trump has now closed that off, right? Yeah, I, I mean. Just completely I, as, an, as an ability to say, um, I may not, you know, do well, but I'm going to go out there and compete for votes. I have a good story to tell. I mean, he tweeted today. We're recording this on Wednesday. Again, you know, no one's done more for black Americans. MAGA loves the black people. Well, and he said, I've done more for bl- uh, black Americans than any president but Abraham Lincoln. So <laughs> I, I think that's not because he thinks he's going to get black vote, right? I think he also wants to send a message to suburban white voters um, that he's got a record there. But I think the rhetoric and the approach here, both as it relates to uh, the Latino population, but also African-Americans, I just just think he's foreclosed that off as an option. Yeah. And, and David, another really important part of the context is, you know, economic. And another thing that's so different about the riots in the 60s to what we're looking at now is um, it's not just black people who are just kind of like really, really, really seething with anger and burning down buildings in their own incredibly poor neighborhoods. It's actually multi-ethnic, multicultural groups of people who are associated with a movement that's been going on for 10 years, you know, the anti-police violent movement and later called Black Lives Matter, who are going to downtown areas, right? Uh, and they're basically, a lot of them are attacking symbols of um, international capitalist brands. It really, in a lot of ways, more resembles the WTO protests in 1999 than it does uh, the riots in cities like Chicago and Watts and Detroit in the 1960s. And part of that is we're talking about a sense of dispossession that's very widespread in a time of, you know, 20 percent unemployment and massive student debt and uh, kids who have feel like they have no hope because of global warming and uh, who have been cooped up because of a pandemic that uh, whose who's, who's spread is largely the fault of the president. Uh, so the fact that this is basically uh, tied into um, a much more broad-based movement for social justice and is not just this kind of spontaneous uprising of terrified people, um, that's very different too. Yeah. Well, for where there's been violence, I agree with that, of course, you know, 99.9% of the people out there, uh, you know, aren't looting. They're protesting and they're protesting peacefully. And, quietly. Yeah, and there's plenty of crimes of opportunity because people commit crimes when they have opportunities. Right, right. I'm curious. So you've been deep in research on Reagan. You're one of the top experts now on Richard Nixon. Uh, so you probably haven't had the same uh, ability to to dive into the historical record on Trump, although you're watching it every day. You know, whether it's you know, uh, some of his own policies around housing with his companies, the Central Park Five. Talk a little bit about, 
you know, what, you know, this seems to be pretty authentic to Trump. You know, I, I don't think this is a tactic. I think he's clearly got um, some pretty disturbing views of race. But w- what's your view as you as you look at him? Yeah, I wrote an article that was published in Salon about basically Richard, uh, Donald Trump as a product of kind of the feral rage, rage-filled, right-wing, reactionary backlash of New York in the 1960s and the 1970s. And, you know, there are many examples of this. Of course, his dad, you know, was caught by the Justice Department uh, only renting to white people, and they hired Roy Cohn to get him off. You know, this is when Donald Trump was a young executive in the organization. You know, this is um, uh, Donald Trump, you know, uh, writing this crazy ad when the Central Park Five uh, were picked up for supposedly um, beating this woman nearly to death as jogger in Central Park. And he said, he told this ridiculous fable in there about how remembered in the ad and the copy of the ad that he signed calling for the death penalty that he penalty that he bought in all the New York papers. He told this fable about the time he remembered when kids were acting up in a diner and the cops came in and, you know, just kind of kicked them out by the scruff of their neck. And that was when the cops weren't, you know, supposedly handcuffed. And while that was happening, of course, was when these five young men who were boys at the time, you know, one of them was 14 years old, were literally tortured in, into confessions. So I don't think the cops were too handcuffed, right? Um, and this was, you know, basically how Donald Trump saw the world as kind of uh, black people as threats and white people as threatened. And a great symbol of that was in one of his rallies early in the primary campaign in 20. 16 or maybe it was in 2015 he said that he had a concealed carry permit uh and uh that if anyone any marauders uh you know f- came came upon him they'd find themselves like the bad guys in death wish you know the charles bronson movie which was a huge hit in 1974 every time charles Br- charles bronson the vigilante would would shoot some uh bad guy you know there would be standing ovations in the theater and you know, fast forward to 2015, 2016, and Donald Trump is leading the crowd chanting death wish, death wish. I mean, that's his moral imagination, right? Yeah. No, I, I think that is a distinction. I mean, I think Nixon clearly believed some of what he was doing, but it seemed as much opportunistic as authentic. For Trump, this is there's a lifelong, uh, you know, a bunch of evidence that suggests this is what he really believes. Uh, w- one more question for you, Rick. So um, Trump also seems to come to his authoritarian instincts quite uh, naturally. This is what he believes. I mean, if he could be president for life, he would. Nixon hated criticism. Um, you know, if you, if you listen to any of the tapes, that comes through loud and clear. Um, had an enemies list, was incredibly paranoid. But you don't get the sense. He also started the EPA. He was, you know, the he was actually a pretty functional, um, you know, believer in levers of government. Um, and, and while he clearly, I think, went after the press in a way that's inconsistent with our Constitution. You know, he wasn't trying to erode other institutions. I mean, at the very end, of course, with the, with the Saturday Night Massacre, uh, he did. Uh, Reagan, similarly, um, didn't seem to be uh, at his core authoritarian. Talk about uh, the differences there, because there does seem to be, as much as people are trying to say Trump is running the Nixon playbook on race, and I think there's quite a bit of similarity there. Uh, we've talked about some of the differences. But I think this authoritarian desire that Trump has has, uh, is maybe unique in American history. Yeah, I think the big difference, and this doesn't necessarily make a Nixon or a Reagan morally better, by the way, is that there was an inside and an outside. There was a there was a kind of foreground and background to Richard 
Nixon and, and Ronald Reagan. I always point out that, you know, people who talk about, you know, the EPA and all this liberal legislation he signed precisely because, you know, uh, Democrats had a veto proof supermajority, you know, and there were lots of liberal Republicans. It wasn't like he wanted to be an environmentalist. He hated environmentalists. He said they wanted to make us go back and live in trees. But if you look at his um, uh, 19, FY 1974 budget that he submitted to Congress uh, that he wasn't able to effectuate because of Watergate, it was a Ronald Reagan budget. It was an anti-Great Society, anti-New Deal budget. It was a far-right budget. And he basically said, now I'm going to actually do what I want to do. But the fact that he was able to kind of discipline himself, you know, and sign legislation that he needed to sign and, you know, pay lip service to environmentalism and civil rights until, you know, uh, (laughs) until he, you know, had achieved his landslide in 1972 uh, shows a level of kind of cunning and discipline uh, that we uh, can't imagine seeing in Donald Trump, who, um, you know, uh, of course, implicates himself in crimes in his public statements. Right, right. But I do think this this authoritarian instinct, whether it's the Blackhawks in Washington, the troops on the Lincoln Memorial, uh, really not believing in any institution, uh, that the only truth is history, that is different. Yes. And, and, and that's I think the difference is, you know, um, Nixon, both Nixon and Reagan wanted to go down history as, you know, statesmen, you know, peacemakers uh, and unifiers, you know, Um and uh, Donald Trump just, you know, wants to go down in history as the most kick-ass, you know, uh, dominating macho, macho muscular dude ever to, you know, uh, uh, occupy the Oval Office. And that's nuts. Right, right. I wonder, Rick, uh, you know, I'm just curious, since you're such a, a great student of history, um, if Trump were to lose particularly in a scenario where it's clear he lost, because I think the nightmare scenario is we don't know for weeks and, you know, voter fraud claims. and But like, how will he handle that sort of 75-day period between November 3rd and January 20th, if you had to guess? Oh, my God. Uh, wow. You remember the ridiculous uh, charges, the fake charges that you guys took the W keys off the keyboards when you, you got to the White House, right? It was <laughs> yeah. all made up. Right, uh, right, right. You know, who knows that maybe, you know, that'll really happen and they'll really kind of sabotage the institutions and make it impossible for the next president to succeed. A guy who thinks that the COVID, you know, crisis was somehow um, exaggerated or whatever in order to make him look bad, or who thinks that uh, Democratic mayors and governors are letting these riots get out of control to make him look bad politically. That's what Gabriel Sherman has just reported in Vanity, Vanity Fair, is only interested in himself. And Will is perfectly, it's perfectly within his means to kind of sabotage his successor in the Oval Office. Uh, and um, that's what we have to kind of stalwartly and stringently face down, that possibility. Well, another reason we have to win by as big a margin as possible. So, Rick, thank you for your time. I would encourage everybody, um, if you haven't read Nixon Land, uh, came out in 2008. It's a remarkable book. If you're trying to understand what Trump and his 
uh, you know, team of misfits are up to and, and to the extent you can divine a strategy or understand their tactics, uh, you know, Rick's book will be incredibly illuminating. I doubt Trump himself has read it. Maybe he has. But clearly they're trying to mirror a lot of what happened uh, in that sort of period from 68 to, to 73. David, he hasn't even read his own books. <laughs> true, true. Uh, and then uh, obviously uh, really well-timed, uh, the book Land, which I can't wait to get my hands on, uh, is coming out in August. And again, I think for those of you who are students of American history and want to have a better appreciation of uh, Trump's uh, approach here and how he thinks he can stick, you know, stitch together uh, enough votes to win the re-election, uh, will be must-reading as well. So, Rick, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Anytime. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that conversation with Rick Perlstein. As someone who's been such a fan of his writing uh, in magazines and his book, Nixonland, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think Rick made a, a couple of points that are really important. One, you know, our country's changed. So, you know, uh, there was a bigger uh, majority back in the 60s and early 70s for this kind of race baiting than there is today. Nixon was much more disciplined. As crazy as he could be behind closed doors, uh, he was much more disciplined. He was much more strategic. Uh, you know, he was not an authoritarian uh, by nature. You know, he was um, as thin-skinned as any president we've had about criticism, but he wasn't trying to destroy institutions. At the very end, you know, he certainly um, tempted that with how he handled uh, the Department of Justice and the Watergate inquiry in its closing days. But, you know, very different. I also am really eager to read Rick's next book, uh, Reaganland, which is coming out in August. And as much as I think we like to remember fondly parts of Reagan's tenure, and there's no doubt he did accomplish some things that are important to the entire country, you know, he was a divisive figure as well. And I think we're going to learn more about, just like Nixon, how Reagan, uh, you know, in a very clever way, he did go out and give speeches to the NAACP and African-American audiences, but he was trying to divide the country for electoral aims by race as well. And uh, I'm sure that uh, as we look at what Trump's going to continue to do, and try to really divide us by race. We're going to learn a lot uh, about Rook's upcoming book in Reaganland, how there's some consistencies and through lines from Nixon to Reagan uh, to Trump. So uh, that's going to be, I think, well worth your time when it comes out in August. So uh, most importantly, stay safe out there. Continue to lift up your voices. Uh, get involved, get organized, both to bring change to our communities, but to elect a new president. There's been mo no more time in American history where an election, I think, is this important. And I think that we don't like to think that it could be that important. We've had civil war. We've had uh, two world wars. We've had the civil rights movement. Uh, but what's very clear in, in the last few days is if Trump is given a second term, well, we won't recognize this country anymore. Uh, we have to stop this madness and this threat in its track. And the only way that we can do that, the only remedy available to us is the ballot box. And so if enough determined Americans spend what time they can uh, registering and sharing content and creating content and organizing and pushing back uh, and lifting up hopeful voices and shouting down hateful voices, uh, we cannot just win this election, uh, but set, I think, a foundation uh, for a really great period in American history. So stay safe, stay vigilant, keep organizing. We only have um, 22 weeks left, less than 22 now, 21 and a half weeks left. Think about that. That's no time at all. The election will be here before you know it. So look forward to being with you next week.